There are some scriptures that, um, quite frankly, need not much introduction. Uh, Today's is one of those. It comes to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. I love John's Gospel because of the heart, at the heart of his Gospel. There's something deep and moving and, as we'll find today, emotional about the way that John tells the story of who Jesus is. Perhaps he expresses it best in this chapter, the 11th chapter. Hear a story of this man named Jesus and the way that he encounters a friend and his friend's family and hear the depth of emotion that John is placing within this story. So Jesus has heard that his friend Lazarus is sick and likely will die, and he intentionally stays back. His disciples aren't sure why. But in verse 17, John tells us this, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. Bethany is the town where Lazarus lay. Many Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary after their brother's death. When Martha, Lazarus' sister, heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him while Mary remained in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And Martha replied, I I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she replied, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ. God's son, the one who is coming into the world. After she said this, she went and spoke privately to her sister Mary. She says, the teacher is here and he's calling for you, Mary. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. He had not entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met met him. When the Jews who were comforting Mary in the house saw her get up quickly and leave, they followed after her. They assumed she was going to mourn at the tomb. When Mary arrived where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if if you had been here, my brother would not have died. when Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying also, he was deeply disturbed and troubled. He asked, where have you laid him? And they replied, Lord, come and see. What does it mean to hold a faith that carries this kind of emotional depth? The story's not over, but we pause here and now the question, what does it mean 
to follow in the footsteps of a Christ whose story includes this kind of pain, this kind of grief. What does it mean to follow in the footsteps of a Savior who doesn't shy away from the realities, even painful realities of life, but instead draws nearer? Let's talk about that today as we continue in a series called Living Lent. This Lenten season, this season of preparation for Easter. We're taking a closer look at some stories of Jesus and and asking the question out loud, what is it like to truly live in his footsteps, to feel the dirt beneath his toes, to hear the crowds, to listen to Mary and Martha crying before him? What does it mean to live that kind of a life? You know, as I was reading this story, and this is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture because of just how real it is, what I, what I noticed this time reading it was how in the face of such deep and raw emotions, Jesus draws nearer, not necessarily to the town of Bethany, but to Martha and Mary, who are keeping it real with Jesus. They're not pretending to be okay with what's happened. Jesus, if you had been here, do you hear the anger? That raw, angry form of grief alive in their voices. Do you know what that feels like? To say, God, I'm glad you showed up now, but if you had been here, I wouldn't be here. Church, do you know what that feels like? I've been with people as a pastor and just as a friend who have experienced what I'll call a dismissive brand of Christianity in their life. Right? It's the kind of faith that says, hey, you've got Jesus, so there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to be sad about. Smile, you've got Jesus, right? Have you ever encountered a brand of faith kind of like that? Have you ever been told, just smile, you've got Jesus, everything's good. I think it's helpful to come back to a story like John's gospel to recognize that you can have Jesus right in front of you and still be mad. And still be angry and still be grieving and still be sobbing and still be a mess. And that's okay. In fact, it's not just okay. It's faithful. My friends, I want to start here today. We are faithful when we are authentic in our emotions. When Jesus shows up to the outskirts of Bethany, he doesn't need Mary and Martha to show up and say everything's fine. In fact, it's because Martha shows up and says, if you had been here, my brother would be alive. It's because of her response that he sparks this conversation and reveals the very core of our Christian theology wrapped up in resurrection, right? It's because of her authenticity that we get to bear witness to that moment. What would that conversation have been like if she had said, oh, we're okay. Thanks for coming, Jesus. We're doing okay, right? I, I I'm grateful to have a faith where I can keep it real, where I can speak with authenticity. You know, this church is a Methodist church, which may mean nothing to you, and I recognize that fully, right? This may be your first Methodist church, and and you don't know a thing about uh, this denomination or a movement, but um, Methodism as a movement uh, exploded in, in early colonial and frontier America, in large part due to its success with what we would call today small group ministries getting people together in a home, around a campfire, in some sort of communal setting where they could be authentic with one another. Wesley, John Wesley, the founder of our movement, had this series of questions that he would hope people would go over, but the first one was always, how is it with your soul? 
a very deep question, John Wesley. Do you ever get with your friends and say, how is it with your soul, right? That's not a friend that gets invited over to many dinner parties. That's some antiquated language that essentially is John Wesley asking, how, how are you really? I've heard it phrased that way. How are you really? If you have friends in your life who can ask you, how are you really? Who you can turn to and say how you are really. If, if you don't, I hope that you'd reach out to me or to a member of our church. I recognize that COVID time, the last two years, have been incredibly isolating for so many people. And so I say that recognizing that maybe not everybody has someone they could turn to and say how they are really. And if that's you, here's an invitation to reach out. And I would love to personally get with you, and I'd love to help find spaces and communities here in this church community. If you're online and sitting on your couch and saying, I don't have anybody like that, I hope that you would reach out too. I would hope that this could be a place where we could share how we are really, because that's faithful when we show up authentically in our emotions and acknowledge who and how we are. I think it's a powerful theological statement that Jesus shows up and encounters Martha and Mary and this whole community grieving and weeping and doesn't tell them to mask it all up and move on. I think it's a powerful statement that we follow in the footsteps of a Savior who draws nearer to places of grief and depth and rawness of emotion. That says something about the God that we seek. Amen? But the story's not done. In fact, this emotion hits even closer to home. It said Jesus saw her crying and, and the Jews would come with her crying also. And, and it says he was deeply disturbed and troubled. And he asked, where have you laid him? And, and they said, Lord, come and see. And then, depending on which version of the Bible you have before you, mine says this, Jesus began to cry. Or put more simply, Jesus wept. And even the people around him are not sure why. The Jews said, see how much he loved him. But some of them said, he healed the eyes of the born, man born blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? There's, there's confusion in the scene, and there's maybe even some confusion for us as to why Jesus cries. Why does Jesus cry? John doesn't tell us. He just tells us that he does. Jesus weeps. There's something about Jesus that's important for us to keep in mind. Um, it's, a, it's a part of our theology of, of who Jesus was and how Jesus lived. Uh, it's this term that's really lofty and, and inaccessible and theological because theologians love lofty and accessible language. It's called the hypostatic union. It's this idea that in Jesus... Uh, there is a, both a fully perfect human and fully perfect divine nature coexisting within one person. Inseparable. Fully God, fully human. The scene of Jesus weeping, I've seen it described by some who say, you know, I love this scene, I love that verse because it, it shows me how, how real and how human Jesus truly is. But see, if we take that idea of a hypostatic union, fully God, fully human, inseparably so, then I would argue not only does the weeping make Jesus more human, it also makes him more divine. There's something about who God is that can be led into the depth of emotion to even weep. This is John's gospel. The same John who says that, 
Jesus comes to this world because God so what? So loved the world. If you've never been to church before, you can quote that. That's like, you know, Austin 3.16, right? I mean, you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world. It wasn't so God was so unhappy with how things were going. God was so sovereign and in control. No, God so loved the world, John says. That's why God comes down in the person of Jesus. To be divine is to be in touch with your emotions in a deep and compelling and profound way that moves you beyond simply your heart into your life. That's part of the gospel message in John. Now, that's an important thing for us to keep in mind, that, that Jesus' tears make him more human and more divine, especially when we consider the other philosophies taking place in this context. John's making a case in his own contextual history here. There is a, a, a very popular philosophy in the Roman Empire called Stoicism. If you know what the word stoic means, then you can get an idea of what was at the heart of Stoicism. To be in control of one's emotions, to not let them overpower you or overcome you. To, 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 as Bertrand Russell says in the history of Western philosophy, to be free from anger, envy, and jealousy. To, to not allow one's emotions to come above the surface, right? That, that was at the heart of, of Stoicism. It was so popular, in fact, that about a hundred years after John's gospel is written, that the Caesar of the Roman Empire is a noted uh, Stoic, right? And he's a, Marcus Aurelius is like this big fan of Stoicism. He's a celebrated member of this philosophical movement. And here John is saying, not only does God not want us to repress our emotions, it's a core aspect as to who God is. God feels God feels and is led by God's feelings. God doesn't come to the world simply because it's logical, but because it's loving. Jesus doesn't step into Jerusalem and onto the cross and through the empty tomb simply because it makes sense or because he's flexing his divine muscles, but because it's loving and it's his grief that leads him there. The grief of seeing a community and a family wrapped up in the death of this world, in the pain and the grieving that can be at home in so many places, in so many hearts, and the feeling of loss. Jesus looks at that and weeps and then knows what must come next. Jesus' tears make him more human and divine. It's a countercultural message in the gospel. Not only is emotion good, it's at the core of God's power and our power in the world. Maybe that's why it's interesting to me that so many faithful Christian movements early in their life, that as they experience radical growth, whether you look at the apostolic movement of the early church, or maybe you look at early Methodism uh, back in the 1700s, or maybe you look at some Pentecostal movements today, the one common thing that people will say in, crit in critique of these movements is they are entirely too what? Emotional. <laughs> They're too emotional. When did we trade the heart of God for stoicism in the life of the Christian faith. You know, Methodists used to get called out for rolling in the aisles too. Can you believe that, AUMC? <laughs> Maybe we could use a little bit more of that. Several times in the story of Lazarus, it says that Jesus was deeply disturbed and moved. 
depending on the translation you read, there's different words substituted in there. Frustrated, angered, deeply disturbed, moved, agitated. It's because the language there is imprecise. We're not certain precisely what those words in Greek truly mean, and that's why the translations all look a little bit different. But there's something in Jesus that feels like it's just not right. Agitated might be the closest translation that we have. To be agitated, to be frustrated, to to know that something is not right and to wish desperately for it to be different. These feelings that that Jesus feels uh, in Bethany then propel him in John's gospel, like I said before, into Jerusalem to live out that Holy Week story. His last week on earth and confronting the temple and leading his disciples to prepare for his death and resurrection you know what's interesting is that the story of lazarus is not mentioned in the other three gospels you think it would have made the cut right i mean jesus brought a man back from the dead right they just leave that part out it's an interesting note especially as we consider john's use of symbols and metaphor i'm just gonna pepper that in there for a second but in the other three gospels they are all very consistent about what happens when jesus leaves bethany bethany is mentioned bethany shows up this town where lazarus lives Bethany, the town name, means house of affliction or house of the poor. Jesus encounters this house of affliction and then goes into Jerusalem. Every other gospel is consistent in this. And he does what? He goes into the, ta- into the temple and he starts flipping tables. He starts flipping tables. Again, because he is deeply moved, he's agitated by what he finds inside. You could say perhaps he steps in and finds a tomb where he would hope to find life. And he finds people bound up in the oppressive systems of their times. And he tells them to come out of the tomb. And to do so, he flips tables in the process. You know, we have this image in our heads of Jesus, meek and mild, but the Jesus that shows up in Jerusalem, the Jesus we are preparing ourselves for in Easter is angry, is grieving, and is ready to do something about it. He's ready to roll stones away from tombs, to call dead men to walk out and to flip tables over in temples to see that his agitation can be acted upon, to know that that which is not right in the world could actually be better. When we allow ourselves to draw nearer to the emotional life of Jesus, we might be surprised about where it leads us. Bethany, this house of affliction, this house of agitation, this place where you recognize something's not right in the world is the place that Jesus leaves and then enters into the holy work of Holy Week that ends with a cross and empty tomb. Where could it take us? Where could it take us? John's gospel, in my mind, is is heightening this argument that Jesus not only felt deeply, experienced emotions that others might deem weak or even dangerous, but John's saying that these precise emotions lead him to love in an abundant and redemptive way. There is no cross or empty tomb for Jesus, John says, unless Bethany comes first. And weeping is a part of his story. In the same way for us, if we want to make it to resurrection, we have to walk through the path of grief. And Lord, as a people, don't we understand grief these last two years? And there's a lot of brands of of Christianity and brands of faith that will say, hey, you don't need to do all that sad stuff. You got Jesus. Put a smile on. 
But John's gospel doesn't say that. John's gospel says not only is it good that you lean into your emotions, not only is it good that you lean into your grief, when you do so, you follow in the footsteps of Jesus and resurrection is waiting on the other side. Now that's hope. That's something you can build a life upon. Jesus' grief leads him to live with greater love. And my friend, ours can do the same. Ours can do the same. Jesus' grief leads him to a greater love. And ours can do the same. Let me share briefly at the end today about a way that that is showing up in this community. So when we talk about grief here at AUMC, there's a, there's a, a shared experience that, that um, I want to witness to. End of last year, a young boy in our church named Luke Childs passed away after a long battle with cancer. And that was a grieving season and moment and continues to be for this church community. And you talk about a depth of love that comes through grief as the pastor getting to witness how a community circles around not just a family, but a, a church family and the spirit of covenant connection that exists here. In that grief, I know in conversation with Luke's mom and dad, Beth and Derek, there is anger, raw anger, rage, frustration, grief, tears, weeping, yes. But in that space, in the outskirts of Bethany, in that house of affliction, I believe that Derek and Beth were, were met by the Spirit of God. And they invited people to give to a fund because they wanted to do something with their agitation, that this is not right. This is not right. So they, they established a fund called the Live Like Luke Fund through Communities Foundation of Texas. And they invited friends and family to give as they felt led because they wanted to impact the lives of those who had children battling cancer, stories similar to their own, who may be experiencing financial hardship as a result because for so many families, you're talking about time investment, taking lower hours, less pay, maybe losing your job entirely as a result. And so they invited people to give, and they figured some friends and family would give, but guess what? Friends and family gave. And pretty soon, Beth and Derek had this fund that they weren't sure what to do with, quite frankly, because people had been so generous, and they wanted to make an impact, but they wanted it to hit close to home, too, because they had been connected to the local area of Children's Hospital and just the network here. And they wanted to make those deep impact, you know, intentionally local impacts in the lives of their community. And so uh, several weeks ago, they reached out to me and they said, we've got these funds and we can't give them directly to individuals, but we want them to go to families who need them most. And we want them to go to families who are local. Do you think the church could help you with that? Could help us with that? And my first response was, I can't believe how much you trust your church to, to come alongside you in this moment. Thank you for that honor. And my second answer was yes, absolutely. Because it excites me to consider the ways that this could be a part of our resurrection story in continuing to live and love like Luke. And so we put our heads together and here's what we're doing. First, we've established a, a live like Luke fund here at AUMC. And it's gonna function in the short term like a benevolence fund. 
And so I've got temporary control over that, and we'll receive applications. Um, in fact, I've got a fun note about that in just a second. And we'll be able to award gifts in the short term through that fund right now. It's got a modest amount of money in it, but it's going to do some good. But what we're working on for the long term is to set up a Live Like Luke ministry board, a team of people. Some of you are sitting in the pews or watching online right now. When I call you, please pick up the phone, and I know you'll say yes. But we're going to be putting together a lead team for this and setting up bylaws because what we see here is the potential for a ministry that will live on for years to come as we tell the story of the way that God is leading you and me and others to make a difference in the lives of family who desperately need some resurrection hope in their lives at this moment. This past week, we got our first application, and, and I'm excited to share with you that this week we'll be awarding $2,500 to a, to a mother and her family here in Richardson, a stone's throw from the church, who is experiencing and battling childhood cancer, who has financial hardships that I can't imagine, and we're not going to make it all go away, but we are going to be able to step into the gap and help. And so as you hear more about this ministry in the future, I want it, one, A, to bring you healing and comfort to know that resurrection is alive and well here at AUMC. That the spirit and love of Luke Childs is alive and well here at AUMC. And number two, I hope that you'll come, come alongside and support these efforts. Because I got to tell you, sitting and looking at Beth and Derek's eyes as we're talking about this ministry and the potential impact this could have for years to come. It's seeing resurrection hope take root. And that's why we do what we do. So that we can step into seasons of grief and we can wait and pray and work for the healing and holy hope of resurrection on the other side. Does this excite you, Arapahoe? To know that this could be a church community, that there are families locally in this area who will receive the very grace of God in a time of great need because of our shared love of one child in this family. If that's not resurrection, I don't know what is. Jesus' grief leads him to love in a greater way. Leads him to an empty cross and an empty tomb. I wonder, I wonder where ours could lead us. Amen.